Welcome to the First Thought podcast at Galway International Arts Festival. I am Paul Fahey, Artistic Director of the festival, and in this series you will get a slice of the festival you can listen to anytime, anywhere. Tune in for fascinating First Thought talks, First Thought backstage, final hours and more. You can listen back to all episodes via GIAF.ie or find First Thought on any podcast platform. Good evening, everyone. Um, it's lovely to see you all here. And I'm delighted to welcome you to the first Galway International Arts Festival Vinyl Hours of 2023. So you, you know, you hear it the first on the first day. As Jack said, my name's Tiernan Henry, and I've been hosting this Vinyl Hours thing for the last number of years. And really, it's a series of conversations um, tracing the musical journeys or our musical journey through the soundtrack of people's lives. And um, Tom Waits famously said that songs are just interesting things to do with the air. And we in Vinyl Hours think it's not such a shabby business to talk about the songs as well and to listen to them. But more specifically, what we're here to do is to talk about songs that move people and what it is about the song or the tune or the piece of music that moves them. So I have to do the, the promo stuff now. There'll be a full set list. The Spotify set list will be up on the Galway International Arts Festival's Spotify page. And if you like what you hear, please consider making a donation to the Galway International Arts Festival. It's a non-profit organisation. It brings arts to people in Ireland and around the world. Go to giaf.ie and click Donate. But now, for today, our guest, our inaugural guest is DJ Moo uh, from Fat Freddy's Drop who are the first gig tonight in the big top just across the field. So please welcome DJ Moo. Thank you for having me. Yeah, the band was formed nearly 25 years ago, sounding in, in Wellington in, in New Zealand. And they've released a series of albums starting in 2001 up to 2017. They've sold nearly half a million albums and they've won pretty much every award that there is to win in New Zealand's uh, music industry. More importantly, I think, which I think is such an admirable aspect about what they do is they're an independent group. Everything they do is independent. They make the music themselves, they release the music themselves, they're in control of it all themselves. Um, and importantly, for tonight, they have a formidable live reputation. But for today, we're here to talk to Moo about some of the songs, the tunes, and the music that moves them. So without further ado, we'll get underway. So, Moo, this is a fascinating, distinctive list. And it's, I think, one of these, as you'll hear the tracks, and we'll only be playing a snippet of the tracks, but it's a real invitation to hear what moves you and the kind of things that you hear and the, the way you hear music as well. And again, when I introduce myself in email to him, I have to apologise because this is such an unfortunate and awful thing to do to someone to say, reduce your soundtrack, reduce all the music you love down to seven or eight or nine tracks if you're lucky. You know? So ideally, well, I, we I should, ideally we should come back tomorrow night with your second version and then the next night and then the next night until you know, we've covered everything. Well, like I said to you in the email, my email reply that it was a ridiculous request. Yep. But what I was prepared to do was just come up with you know, nine or ten tunes that yeah. uh, contributed and helped shape my personal journey. Yeah. yeah. Good. Well, listen, what we do, maybe we'll just start, we'll get, we'll get started with this. So your first choice is from 1976. Um, Stevie Wonder, who was 26 at the time, 
and he released songs in the key of life. It is a sprawling double album that took the Grammy for Album of the Year, Producer of the Year, Best Male Vocal and Best Male R&B Vocal, all of which went to Stevie Wonder, of course, and it's rightly regarded as one of his, one of his best albums. And the awful thing about it is, as a 26-year-old, it was his 18th studio album. So love's in need of love today, Stevie Wonder. I mean, to you, the, this selection is actually more about the album. Hmm. But, you know, of course, we had to pick a tune uh, to actually play. I'm not a big fan of ballads normally, but uh, this one I do like. Um, it's mostly made it to the list primarily because it was actually the first record I think I ever bought with my own money. Right, yeah. And um, I, inher I inherited a lot of uh, soul records from my, my older sister. I'm the youngest of five. But a lot, a lot of her selections were quite mainstream and... Uh, when this album came along, uh, well, I, I didn't discover it in 76. I discovered it a little bit later. But, um, yeah, it's uh, an incredible album, uh, incredibly Afrocentric, and just, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different flavours on there, and it's incredibly, yeah. uh, you know, it's sophisticated, you know. And then um, what age would you have been, roughly, do you think, when, when you bought it? I reckon I was uh, about 18. Perfect age. Yeah. Just the, yeah. And I presume you, you know every single note on it. I wouldn't say that. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's one of the albums that I always yeah. go back to occasionally yeah. and, and have listened. And, and it's kind of stuck with me as uh, yeah, an important start to yeah. my vinyl collection, really. And, I mean, I can, as we're listening to it and we've listened to the other tracks as well, you can really get this sense of... I, I, I could, the, the, the groove that's going right through these tracks. Um, I, I said it to you earlier when I, I was listening to some of these this morning, and, and I couldn't believe how, how connected the, the tracks that you picked are. They just seem all to flow into the next one. But, and, and I'm wondering because you're a producer, when, when you're listening to something like this, how, how do you hear it? Or do you, do you I mean, I'm, do you uh, hear it just as a listener, or do you hear well, it? To be a, honest, yeah. I mean, the harder it is to uh, articulate why I like it, I right. don't really find yeah. it's, uh, it's probably the better it is. Yeah. It, it is a vibe, and um, with someone like Stevie, who is obviously also blind, I mean, all his albums are amazing. Yeah. All of, you know, most of his songs are great, uh, and they're great for both the instrumentation, the, the music, mm. musical playing, uh, and also the singing. Yeah. And in particular, uh, Lovers in the Need Today is just a great vocal. Yeah, and effortless. It just seems, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we do is we, we'll move on because we'll, we'll stay in the 70s for, for your second choice, which is Donny Hathaway, and who, who was from Chicago. And he was a songwriter and a musician himself and a producer, and he worked for Curtis Mayfield for a number of years. But then he released his debut in 1970. And the lead-off single which is the, the track that you've picked today, was released, again, was released in 1969 when he was, when he was just 23. But again, just think about, listen to the groove of this as it fits into what we just listened to with Stevie, please. So the ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, this, off Everything is Everything came out in 69, uh, that version. Uh, it got, I think, re-recorded more than the 80s uh, as a, uh, on one of his live albums. Um, it's just the most, I think when I first heard it, it was just the most soulful thing I, I think I'd heard. Um, 
He's one of my favourite singers. Um, I mean, it's not even really a song. I mean, it's, there's, there's, there's very little lyrics. It's yep. basically a, a lot of amazing uh, instrumentation and him hitting a chorus every now and then. Yep. And, uh, and, that's what I, and and his, him playing uh, the chords that he's playing on the world, so just uh, work with the chorus, beautiful. Yeah, and, those um, big fat chords. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, it's such a moving song uh, that has no lyrics, really. But so, but yeah, I think uh, even when I, mean, I uh, wasn't from that time or from that place, but uh, it's quite easy to get transported to yeah. and get a sense of a feeling of uh, what he was, where he's from, and what he was going through. And, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, what I find about it as well, I think, and it sounds so immediate. It sounds so current. It doesn't sound at all dated. I think maybe, I don't know whether that's simply because the way it was recorded and the instrumentation is so simple. Um, but it, and it just works on this notion of a groove. You see, it's not really a song. But, and it's, it's six or seven minutes long and it goes by in a flash. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's just a, an amazing singer, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so listen, we're going to jump forward a little bit to 1990 and right into, I suppose, what's been called the golden age of hip hop. And that's when Public Enemy released their third album. And um, it's an elaborate sound collage that incorporates, this is what they say, uh, rhythms, numerous samples, media sound bites, and eccentric loops. But more importantly, Chuck D reckons it's probably their, their deepest and most complex album, which is um, uh, Fear of the Black Planet. And it kicks off, and I think again, when, when you emailed me, you said you, when Mu emailed me, he said he, with the album choices here, he said he could have picked any track pretty much from any of these albums. But the, the one we'll, we'll, talk, we'll listen to and talk a little about is Welcome to the Terror Dome. So Welcome to the Terror Dome by Public Enemy. Yeah, I think when I um, discovered this tune, I was going through quite a major growth spurt as far mm. as discovering uh, music, different types of music. I was uh, probably in my early 20s, and I discovered uh, I was at university, which I did very badly at. But uh, in my time at university, uh, I discovered student radio, and uh, back home in New Zealand, um, student radio was, was great. It was where you would listen to, uh, to find new music from all sorts of genres, and um, yeah, the first time I heard it, just, I, just didn't, I couldn't really fathom what the hell I was listening to. It was just like sirens. It was kind of like the first time we heard a, a turntable used as an instrument, and, uh, and obviously a, a very... Um, you know, a vocal take had plenty of attitude, and yeah. um, and also I think uh, it landed uh, a big part of that uh, song was its involvement in "Do the Right Thing." Mm -hmm. I was, you know, it was like, it was like a double hitter. Really, I discovered uh, Spike Spike Lee. Uh, that song was a big part of that uh, soundtrack, and um, yeah, it kind of led me down a path of discovering, yeah. trying to find out what, more about hip-hop music. And, uh, but yeah, when I, when I first heard it, I was going, what the hell is this? And so, say when you, roughly, when you were around 20 or so, were you, were you playing music already at that stage, yourself? I was, uh, yeah, it was, my, it was early in my sort of, uh, collection, uh, collecting days of vinyl when I was doing shows on uh, daytime shows yeah. and uh, discovering music and... Uh, it was very eclectic for me at that time. I was listening to Public Enemy, I was listening to Fugazi, I was listening to yeah. uh, 
REM, early REM, it was just uh, student radio uh, in New Zealand at the time was uh, just playing the best of all kind of underground music and yeah. uh, it was it's a great place to to hang out and be involved and learn about uh, stuff that wasn't so mainstream. And, and is that, you, like the people that you were starting to hang around with, were you yeah, finding, yeah, I think it was, was the, that uh, through the music as well? The beginning of me, yeah. Sorry, it was the beginning of me turning into, beginning my crusade of yeah. basically being a musical pain in the ass. <laughs> and, uh, just, and just wanting to, even as a DJ, certainly um, not, play what was too obvious and to try and, um, without being arrogant, but to try and educate and provide options yeah. for people to listen to, because, uh, you know, there's much better music out there than what was happening necessarily on mainstream radio. Yeah, and I suppose it was probably the same a little bit here in Ireland at the end of the 70s. Like, we, we had to look to England to listen to England. That's where we heard music from. Our, it was a couple of TV programmes we'd pick up everything from. Um, and I suppose like student radio, again, I know people in the States would always say to me as well, it was when they got to college and the student radio was where they found these things because people would just play everything. They weren't a format show. They would just play whatever they liked, whatever was new. Yeah, and they that, could was, get their that was the format exactly yeah. at, at Radioactive where I was working. Just yeah. And also ended up, after a while, after doing shows, became the production manager, right. uh, which entailed basically making their ads yeah. on an old eight-track tape machine. And right. And was that your introduction to... That was probably my, yeah. Yeah, my introduction to uh, engineering and yeah. production. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> it was pretty basic stuff. It was an 8-track Atari tape machine, an old uh, tech Scorpion disc, one microphone. Everything was uh, recorded to these big plastic carts. Right. And uh, at the end of the day, to rub the cart over a big magnet to wipe to, it. To wipe for the next day. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, listen, we'll stay. We're going to stay in 1990. So actually, these the, these three tracks that we're playing now, we're talking about now, we're all from 1990. Again, this kind of caught me off guard that I, I just didn't make that connection. So this the second track we're going to listen to from 1990 is from D'Angelo, and it's from his second album, which was Voodoo, and. Um, it was he. He'd released an album called Brown Sugar in 1985, I think, which had done really well, and he toured it and toured it and toured it and had lots and lots of health problems. But when he came back to do the follow-up, he said what he wanted to do was dig back into the stuff that he grew up listening to. So the Stevie Wonder and the Donny Hathaway were, re he said, were a really, really big influence on the sound that he wanted to do. And he said, he just said he wanted to get to the next level to push it even further. And you can really hear that influence in the, the, the track we're going to listen to now. So that's Spanish Joint by D'Angelo. Yeah, so this is another one that's it's actually probably more uh, like, uh, as with uh, Stevie, more about the whole album, mm. really. But um, I had to pick one tune, and uh, yep. I thought that was a good one to pick. But um, this is, I mean, I personally, just the, this album speaks for itself. It's just, uh, it could have been a Stevie Wonder album, it could have been a Donny yep. Hathaway album, it yep. could have been, um, but obviously it was much later, and uh, in particular, the track we just heard there, um, it sounds like a soul track to me with uh, with the production, with the drums, very dry, very forward, um, just a, a new approach to soul music, really. And um, I really have to attribute this album uh, 
to our singer in Fat Fresh Drop, Dallas. He he kind of brought this album to me. Right. His his, uh, his shtick is really soul music, and um, and, and uh, he introduced me to this album. And I think we just listened to it for like two years solid, and uh, it was just constantly on everything. It was on the car. It was yeah. And um, and for some reason, I think Questlove was involved in this album a lot with the production, and uh, it was like a, a gift. I can't remember the specific songs, but a lot of the, um, there was two songs in particular where they started with just like clean drum hits, kicks, snares. I sampled all of those and I've still, I still use the rim shot till today because I haven't yet to find a better rim shot. <laughs> <laughs> and then I suppose you've, you've, you've started talking a little bit about how you, how did you make that shift then? Sort of from just being, you know, like doing the ads in the radio station to saying, I think, we could re we could do live stuff and we could record it, or or you could, you were thinking I could record this and I have ideas about how to record things. Yeah, I mean it was, it was just kind of fairly natural. I started on an eight track tape machine and then um, and through a lot of this music, like uh, later we're going to talk about uh, a track called Quest. Mm. I started hearing specifically in, the, in hip, hip hop music uh, the sampler and um, and how that could be used and. Um, and still today, the, my main tool for production is, is, is still using a sampler. And, yeah. uh, and of course, recording live musicians as well on top. But um, yeah, and just uh, so I went and bought a sampler. Yeah. And, and, and most of my education uh, for music production and engineering has all been just self-taught, just by through hanging out with like-minded people. Or and just having to find a way to get some money and buy the gear and, and learn how to use it, yeah. um, and and just and learning that way. Yeah, and I, like a lot with the band, a lot of like I read what a, a lot of your earlier albums in particular, you, you road tested them, you, you developed yeah, yeah. the tracks on live, or you know before you recorded them, and. Did, did you think that was a good way, or do you think that's a good way to operate? And did yeah, it, suit, did it, it suit you in terms of arranging things in your head? You know? Yes, it suited us. I mean, to be honest, I, I don't see myself that much as a, a producer. I mean, I certainly there are tasks that I can uh, that I'm comfortable with mm. that fit into the the, the job description of a yeah. producer, but. Um, I really have no interest in learning, learning uh, how to write music, uh, you know, yep. read music. Yep. Um, and that's why I surrounded myself with some clever musicians yep. and we've all got a job. And my job has always been uh, to come up with good starting points, uh, program good drums. And uh, the job that I probably like the most is actually uh, the job of the engineer and running the studio. And, but, you know, I always think that uh, you really can't, call yourself a producer unless you really have those deep skills of uh, musical notation and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I, it's too late for me to learn that stuff. Well, I think uh, you're still a good <laughs> producer, I think you can still call yourself a producer. Well listen, you, you've mentioned them, so we're, we, we'll talk a little bit about um, and, uh, your, your next choice is, uh, and it's again, it's still 1990. Um, it really was the golden age. Um, this a band from Queens, and they were like D'Angelo. They were sort of leaning back into the soul and um, the, you know, like the Stevie Wonder, Donny Hathaway stuff. But they were also going in towards the, the kind of jazz and, and reggae and folk as well. And I suppose around the time there was this notion of an alternative hip hop, I guess. 
And the album that they released, which was their debut from 1990, was People's Instinctive Travels and the Path of Rhythm. Um, and I, I found a really good quote from the source. They described it as a voyage to the land of positive vibrations, which yeah. I think is as good a description you hear of anything yeah. a tribe called Quiets does. So, it, uh, and again, I think, again, you could have picked any track, but it's the opening track that we'll talk about, which is Push It Along. It could only be a tribe called Quest. They're such a distinctive sound, haven't they? Yeah, it's such a, um, a natural sounding record, the whole record. You know, and Q-Tips, uh, you know, a genius poet. And um, yeah, it's just the, all, all the vocals just sit on the rhythms very naturally, comfortably. Uh, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of ego, yeah. more just messages. And uh, I think uh, what hit me when I listened to this record was uh, actually that whole thing about learning, working out how they, how they made this and uh, just the use of the jazz samples. Mm. And uh, I think uh, listening to records like this uh, really led me to uh, get into uh, learning how to use the sampler and, and, and start buying. There was a, a long time there where I'd pretty much walk into the local secondhand shop in Wellington where I used to buy my records and I just bought any soul record, any funk record from 1973. Didn't know anything about it, I just bought it, took it home and uh, started sampling them and, and you know, learning and took a lot of inspiration from albums like this, yeah. really. And, like, as you're learning this, you're teaching yourself, essentially, like, teaching yourself into this trade or, or, or skill. Like, at what point do you, at what point did you feel confident to say, I want, I want people to hear this, or I want. I, I think this this is good enough to play, or you know, for people to play live or here. Yeah, I think it was definitely live. Yeah, was the uh, <clears throat> the vehicle and the platform for initially uh, before recording. Yeah, as such, uh, to actually, and that's the that's the beauty about, uh, and still today, how we how Freddie's operate is uh, I'm on stage. I'm on stage with two samplers. Uh, obviously, they're much more modern samplers now, but back then uh, it was a an MPC 2000 XL that I, I went and brought and uh, and was able to put together pieces of music that were generally based around four bar loops that had yeah. lots of different layers, hi-hats, kick drums, uh, some sort of chords that had been sampled from somewhere and drop them in and out and uh, go on stage with a few musician friends and and, and improvise really, and just see uh, where we could go. And you know, I'll, I'll be dropping things out, and, and also at, by that stage, I was learning how to use uh, studio effects. And so I'd be on stage with a sampler and a mixing desk and a space echo. And uh, initially, it was uh, Dallas singing, and uh, Toby uh, Toby Chang, our trumpet player, who's still our trumpet player, and uh, they would come along to either. We would do it over uh, records as well. You know, I'd yeah. go out and get a club. I'd have a, a club set in a, uh, in, in a nightclub and um, and would set up a little bit of extra gear and uh, I'd play mostly instrumental stuff that was kind of just really groove-based, a lot of left-field house music. Yeah. And the guys would uh, just have a jam over the top and I'd hit them with a bit of space echo and uh, I think the confidence to move towards... Uh, recording and f I think first always came from checking these things out live and seeing if they uh, anyone actually liked uh, what they were hearing. 
And I suppose it gives you the confidence then yourself, or, or even just as the group when you're recording, that you, you kind of know what it is you're, you're trying to do. At yeah. that point, you've worked out sort of what you... Yeah, and you now know. further on from then, yeah, we, we, we definitely will go to the stage early on with uh, kind of a rough arrangement of something, yeah. and, uh, and often that will help us... Uh, Kind of con condense that, you know, yeah. and uh, get it down to a more solid, you know, because not all the ideas are good. I mean, you've got to, you just, just throwing th things out there and seeing if they work. If they yeah. don't work, get rid of them and, and then you just fine tune and fine tune and then uh, you kind of generally know when it's working. I suppose that's probably the hardest part, isn't it? To stop fine tuning it. It's to say, right, that's yeah, ready or that we've got it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've never, I've never ever finished a rec one of our records. Yeah. I've been, I've been dragged away from it, uh, generally by my wife. This done it needed to be done five it's months done. ago. Yeah. You get dragged off it, and because uh, you know, it's just, it's a, it is that thing where you can tinker, yeah. and uh, and then you can tinker, and then you tinker so hard, and then you start, you actually start to second guess yourself. So it's quite good to have someone that will yeah. walk away. That's yeah. good. Good enough. You can end up in the sandbox, <laughs> I guess, you know. You know. And we, we'll go on, because like, a real influence as well, certainly on, I, I, certainly on you guys, but also on a tribe, uh, is Canadian, Jamaican-Canadian keyboard player and songwriter called Jackie Matoub. And he was in loads and loads of groups. I couldn't, I, he was in the Scatolites and the Sheiks and Sound Dimension. And um, he's, in 1980, he released his, another one of these extraordinary productive people. It was his 16th album, and it features your next choice, which is Wall Street. So it's a little bit of a shift from what we've been hearing so far. Yeah, no, this, this is a tune that I didn't, came out in, in, in 80, 1980, yeah. and it's not certainly not one that I, I actually discovered this tune maybe only 10 years ago. Yeah. But uh, I, just, I just love the confidence of it, as in... It's probably f the recording was probably four tracks, five tracks. There's, uh, you know, there's the uh, there's the Rhodes of Willits are there. There's uh, there's some percussion, there's some drums, there's a bass, and really just the ballsiness, just the that's it. It's so simple, and, and, isn't and it? the, you know, it's an incredibly hypnotic tune. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, I just love the simplicity of it. And the funny thing, the the twelve inch version, uh, if you've got it on vinyl. Uh, you can actually hear um, it was obviously done on a on a tape machine, and uh, they basically um, play it once through, and then, then they spliced it together and just played it again. Yeah. And you can actually hear the splice, <laughs> and it's out of time. It, it comes back in slightly out of time, and it's just it's just genius. <laughs> it's just you know it's just cheeky, and it's. Uh, it's just one of my favourite tunes. Yeah, and I suppose what, what I like again about it, it goes back, you can hear those big fat chords in it, and it goes back, It's even though it's it, from that Jamaican background, so we're moving into sort of the reggae stuff, you can still see that soul influence as well, where there's really simple ideas. And, and I suppose, as you said, it's this ballsiness or confidence to say, no, that we don't need to do any more than yeah, that. I this mean, is, is good enough, you know. Like you said earlier, I think he, you know, he's a prolific, Producer yeah, who's yeah. done a lot of stuff, and I think yeah, you you, you learn, you know, you can't teach that stuff. It's just yeah. through his uh, the amount of stuff that he's done that he can uh, be that confident, to just uh, keep a, a tune that simple. Yeah, and and again with with you guys, do you you know do you ever would you, would would you approach stuff and try and just 
strip stuff right down to us. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we do, we'll, we'll go to the stage with something yeah. that, that simple uh, that we kind of feel naturally probably needs more. Yeah. And then, um, and then build on it. Yeah. But um, with eight on stage, it's pretty much impossible for us to keep it that stripped back. Yeah. But I mean, that's live is live, and recordings are. Yeah. You can do something different in the, in the studio. You can you can you can actually do a bit more production and make production choices yeah. to simplify things. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose as well with these with the tracks you've been listening to, however complex or simple they are, they've got this really good rhythm to them. Like it's hypnotic. Everything we've been listening to these hypnotic things that just draw you right in. And you can easily see how six, seven, eight minutes can go by, and you feel it's just started, you know. Like I said, I mean, uh, I, I think they probably, after four minutes, decided it wasn't enough, so they just... Yeah, splice it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And we'll, we'll move on, because this is. It, I have to read this carefully. It's Morris, Moritz von Oswald and Mark Ernestus. They started Basic Channel in Berlin in, in the 90s, and they've recorded under lots of different names, including Rhythm Sound, um, which is what we'll be talking a little bit about. And it's with, with, with that in particular, that's where they really dig into those Jamaican, you know, that Jamaican dub stuff. And they'll use lots and lots of different types of vocalists to flesh this out. So I suppose it follows on nicely just from the last track. And this one features Cornell Campbell as well. So it's King in My Empire. I love that record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, um, well, Cornell, first Cornell Campbell was. Uh, one of my favourite reggae singers, mm. and then when he hooked up with uh, with those two that you mentioned, Anistos uh, uh, and uh, Oldwood, um, it's just the that whole uh, creation, you know, beginning of creation vibe that they get. It's just so lo-fi. It's incredibly uh, bass heavy. Again, like uh, Jackie Mitsu, uh very hypnotic with this incredible um, soulful vocal over the top, kind of just the two favourite things I love, really, just yeah. the, the, the simplicity, the heaviness, um, and an incredibly soulful vocal. And, uh, and <clears throat> rhythm and sound, I mean, they've got other uh, pseudonyms, like the all their stuff I love, like the Marizio, yeah. which was more on the kind of techno and house uh, and uh, a bit more clubby, but um, just the yeah, their production style was just incredible. It was just very fat, and uh, but yeah, not, not too. Uh, it's quite lo-fi. Yeah, and it, like there's a huge amount of space in it. You, yeah. you know, there's all this space just like for the vocal to play around with, you know, and and I suppose again, I hear that in your stuff as well. I hear. You can clearly see these influences, and I don't mean you know in a negative way, but you oh, can yeah, see I mean, where you've I'm taken from, you know, these deeper tracks, and it does obviously influence the sound you guys have come up with as well, you know. And I think we produce, uh, you know, in New Zealand, kind of eighteen thousand miles away from the main action, yeah. uh, and really, you know, a young a young country that doesn't have the musical history mm. of uh, America or uh, Europe and. And, but I think we uh, we benefit from there are not so many rules and we just you know yeah. buy these records, go to the record shop, find these gems, and then uh, just take take from all these cool genres and and uh, and just make it you know, make yeah. our own thing. Uh, whereas you know I think if you're maybe growing up a, a musician in South America, uh, that it's probably 
you're probably naturally kind of restricted to uh, these jazz and and probably more kind of uh, musical red tape yeah. involved. But you know, we're we're just pinching stuff left, right, and centre down there. Do you like it? <laughs> <laughs> and do you still do that? I mean, do you still do you still like record stores and still like going in and buying stuff, yeah, yeah. And rooting through stuff, and spending yeah. ridiculous amounts of money on this tour yeah. already? No, no, you never, never admit to the amount of money. <laughs> Everything was a bargain. That's what you have to say. You know. But, but it, and it, but you still. Yeah, I mean that's my main source of my inspiration. I mean, uh, I DJed for a long time, and, and DJing was definitely my uh, entry into this world of becoming a record, you know, yeah. recording artist and a, a beat maker. It was all started from initially being a DJ, but I don't DJ anymore. Um, but I still buy just as many records. I'm a more a collector now, and just and I quite enjoy that. Um, uh, I do a reggae show on the same radio station that I started like a million years yeah. ago. Uh, started on, and um, I do the reggae show for them once once a month. And uh, actually, just lately, it's been it's helped me kind of focus my record buying just on reggae at the moment. Right. Otherwise, I just there's too much stuff. Just that too I like. much to keep up with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, well, we're, we're nearly done. We've just a couple of tracks left, and we're, these are kind of stand alone almost, I suppose, because everything else I felt was this real connection with it a little bit. And, and the, the next one is it's an LCD sound, LCD sound system remix by, by Theo Parrish. Um, and this was 4533, and it was commissioned by Nike, astonishingly. They commissioned the band to make a one track album. And in Nike's words, it was being designed to accompany jogging workouts to reward and push at good intervals of a run. So he obviously knew who they were dealing with in the band. Um, but the band then re-released the album, the album in 2009, just as this set of remixes. And the one you've picked is the Theo Parrish remix. So we'll just listen to a little bit of that. So why why this remix one? <laughs> well, I mean, if you're not, if you're not too familiar with that tune, you really need to go and. Uh, source it and listen to the whole thing because it's um, th this is yeah. this choice is more about uh, no disrespect to LCD sound system. This is definitely for me. Uh, it's all about Theo Parrish. Uh, I could have picked some of his own personal sections, but uh, this one in particular, uh, when you listen to the whole thing, uh, he's just he's probably one of my favourite techno producers uh, out there. Uh, he um, he's all about Surprising you, he's all about uh, celebrating the mistake, uh, and when I say that, I, I mean things will come in, things will elements will drop in and out of tunes that are just too loud. And but if, you know, that's, that's that's how he works. He likes to, um, and, it's, and as far as timing goes, he likes to uh, try and move where the first the, the one is for you. Like he'll, he just puts things in strange places, and uh, but uh, when you listen to the whole thing, it all makes sense. And, uh, yeah. He's just a, a tricky guy who makes incredibly tasteful uh, techno. Him. And I want to be like him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and do you do that, or can you say to the band, no, I meant that? You know, I meant well, I mean, that. I mean yeah, yeah. I, I, there's nothing more I love than being on stage with the eight guys that I go on stage yeah. with. We obviously can't make music like that. Well, yeah. it's, but, you know, I'm, I'm a, there's, a, there's life outside the band. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's a great choice, and so what we'll do is we, we'll finish up with your final choice, which kind of moves in, and I suppose it's, it's a little bit about the producer again, and um, 
it's it's Carol Craig that, that you've picked. It's a Carol Craig track, and um, he's obviously a leading figure and a pioneer in in the second wave of Detroit techno artists in particular. But he's recorded under loads of different names, and he's remixed everyone, you know, from Tori Amos to uh, Depeche Mode and Junior Boys and so on, and produced a vast body of work himself. And your last choice is the song Darkness. A bit like, uh, for the same reasons I, uh, I was picking up uh, Wall Street from Jackie Mateo, just incredibly confident that he didn't need uh, beats on this tune. Yeah. Uh, I just love uh, the rhythm of it, and uh, it's just a, a true celebration of synthesizers and uh, simplicity and uh, that whole hypnotic thing again. And um, yeah, he's a clever, he's a clever guy. He's a little, Theo and him are probably, probably my heroes as far as making techno music go. And Carl's slightly different in that he uh, is a bit more solid rhythmically and uh, is not so much about shocking and just incredible uh, taste and, and use of, of uh, textures. And um, but yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's a legend. And like when you, again, just go back to the start. I suppose it's just when you listen to stuff like this. Do you listen as a producer? Do you you know? Do you listen to it kind of going, "How do you do that?" Or how? No, no. I think. Um, or is that just? No, they always come after. Or yeah. I'll hear it and go, well, for some reason, for it'll prick my ears up, and I yeah. go, oh "My God!" Uh, and then after working out that I love the tune, then I'll and then yeah. the, the hat, then the hat will come on, and yeah. I'll, I'll try and work out uh, why. It, as most people work out, why it's so good and. It's a good one to finish with. Yeah, but yeah, but both those last things, you, yeah, if you don't yeah. like that familiar, you need to source them out and listen yeah. to them in yeah. their entirety. Yeah, so I've put, we've put them on, they're on the Spotify page for the festival, the, in all the tracks, and oh. a lot of the tracks are quite long, but they're just just let it play. It's, mm. it's really, really good altogether. So listen, I'd like to thank everyone for coming, and I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did, and it's great, and I'd particularly like to thank Moo for joining us because obviously they were getting ready for tonight. But it's been a pleasure to meet you, and it's been yeah. a pleasure to for you to share, for us to hear your, your musical choices. So please, ladies and gentlemen, Moo. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Good night. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. For more episodes, visit giaf.ie or find the First Thought podcast on any podcast platform. First Thought is presented in association with the University of Galway.